Alex Ross is the uh, music critic for The New Yorker, author of the acclaimed The Rest is Noise, and most recently a collection of essays entitled Listen to This. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I wonder if we could first get to your philosophy of criticism. I've heard you say that you practice all sorts of different types of journalism and analysis and judgment. What is it that really drives you to do what you do? Well, I suppose it's sort of a complicated set of aspirations and goals that, that, that I have in mind uh, when I write. And sort of the objective side of criticism, and sort of the classic form of journalistic reporting on, on musical events and good uh, culture. Was it slow? Was it fast? Was the soprano flat or, or sharp? And, and all this kind of thing, which is an important component of uh, criticism. And, and I think the writing does need to be grounded in uh, a sort of musical reality. And, and people debate endlessly over whether this kind of precise and, and exact writing about music is even possible. And you know, yes, there are a great deal of subjectivity that enters into it. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, it, it is possible to treat the whole thing uh, as a journalistic enterprise. A concert is an event. People show up, something happens, and, 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 the, and the critic uh, reports on it. You describe uh, it, yeah. you evaluate it, well, and you judge it? The judgment aspect of it is where it, it becomes trickier, um, I think. Of course, uh, one's own opinion always enters into it. You know, I'll go to concerts, and, and there are uh, very intelligent, uh, very musically literate people who have a, a very different uh, reaction. So I place my own opinion on the record, but I don't see this as, as, as the most important aspect of, of what I do. Again, it's, it's, it's necessary. You know, along with the quote-unquote reporting, there's also uh, the opinion, uh, the quote-unquote judgment. But it, it is also debatable. And I, I feel that... I don't know if that many people care, ultimately whether any one person thought it was good or not. I, I think what, what, is, what is really more valuable uh, is, is to give a sense of what it was like to be there and a sense of what was at stake. So what do you mean by what's at stake? It's always interesting to ask, you know, why the musicians are doing what they do and, and, and people take it for granted. Here's an orchestra playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but you know why that work uh, at this particular time, and, and, and what do musicians have fresh to say about it? Very often, people aren't used to uh, <laughs> to being asked that that question. They, they just sort of feel that uh, that you know, of course it's going to be Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So it's it's, it's interesting to probe that area. And so, and for example, why a conductor or a, a philharmonic orchestra would choose to play a certain work at a certain time may have political over it. Yeah. No. yeah, usually I don't take it to sort of on quite that grandiose a level. You know, more it's a question of, of programming, really, and this is a very important uh, part of what orchestras and, and other kinds of uh, ensembles and musical organizations do, just not simply how well are they playing, but what does it all add up to over the course of a season? Uh, what what does this particular configuration works say about you know sort of the musical landscape at this time? You know, what are the, the fresh tendencies in terms of the interpretation, in terms of the, the picture of 
the, the entire repertory that we are being given, uh, sort of historically and also sort of in the contemporary sense. And I think you know, what is most important for me, again, just as a journalist, is what is being done with, with new music. And, and, and if I weren't allowed to write about new works, I would have no interest whatsoever in being a music critic. I, I, I wouldn't want to write about organizations that, that, that only played Mozart and Beethoven, and, and uh, frankly, I, I tend not to pay a lot of attention to, to such organizations, not because this, this music isn't uh, sublimely great, it is, but I, I simply believe that, that classical music is uh, a living mm. and evolving art, and there are thousands of composers all over the world who, who are writing valuable and, in some cases, great new music. And as a journalist, it is, it is simply so much more interesting to write about the new. But if they were people coming up with new efforts, exploring new, new ground, then all we get is inferior versions of the great works, or right. the, the same thing over and over again. Right. Or in opera, you find this increasing desperation to reinvent the, the older works uh, of the repertory, sort of ever more outrageous interpretations of Mozart and and Verdi and, and Wagner, which is actually a, a really a substitute for premieres, for, for new work. People, people just can't see La Traviata exactly the same way over and over again, so they're, they're, they're looking for uh, a sort of uh, a newness uh, there, and it's being Im- imposed by directors now, but it, it, it really is in the place of new work, which uh, in, in almost every opera house that I can think of should be a, a much bigger part of the repertory. Uh, but I think there has been progress. Just in the 20 years I've been an active music critic, I've actually seen living composers, contemporary composers, coming a little more to the forefront. It, it, it seems less of a, of a museum art form than it, than it did when I first started out, and uh, it's, it's very happy for me to witness. I can't help but think of James Joyce and what he did with literature. He sort of took it to an extent that it's difficult to go beyond. He wrote about the subconscious, the unconscious. Beyond that, it becomes babble. Mm-hmm. In art, there's the abstract use of color and shape and form. And, and, and in music, the same sort of thing is, is being done. But I guess with all these different efforts to come up with something new, it's often very difficult for a layperson or the, the intelligent. There's a great little line you've got for the, sort of the educated. The phrase is culturally aware non-attender. This is what <laughs> <laughs> classical music people call uh, a very typical kind of person who's uh, gone to college, is, is educated, uh, keeps up with new novels and goes to art shows and sees uh, foreign films, uh, but uh, pays almost no attention to classical music. It's the lacuna, sort of great gap. That's where you're stepping in. So many people are stepping in and trying to uh, attack this problem, whether it's composers, conductors, uh, musicians, critics, uh, artistic administrators, and so on and so forth. And you have older generations, at least in America, the, the exposure to classical music was more general because it was just... It was on the radio and it was on television in the early days of, of television. It was in the magazines and, and it was just sort of more more part of the, the average intelligent person's menu. And, and sometime 
in, in the past 30, 40 years, it, it, it really uh, dropped off to a great extent. So that is what so many people are addressing uh, right now. And I think you can, you can really have some success with it, even if they have not grown up with this music. They can, can wake up to it. Can you make the new music more accessible, though? I mean, that's the, that's the, the big challenge with, with anything that's new. I mean, it may not be as comforting or as pleasant or moving as the stuff that you're familiar with. It may or may with. not be. I mean, it, you know, people have a, a stereotype of, of modern music, which yeah. is this, this jarring, atonal sound. This is uh, certainly one very important aspect of music of uh, the past hundred years, but there are many, many other aspects to it. I mean, you mentioned James Joyce. When people think of 20th century literature, what, what is the principle the dominant style of writing in, in, in the 20th century? Well, it's almost an impossible question to answer. People will want to know well, what, what genre are we talking about? What country? What, what sort of you know, school of literature? They're not going to automatically think Finnegan's Wake. 20th century literature, that's just, that's just crazy Finnegan's Wake. So, you know, they're going to have a, a, a very sort of different set of responses to what you mean. But in modern music, they sort of automatically leap to this very strongly dissonant sound. That is, is how they've uh, sort of categorized it. The point that I'm getting at with Joyce, though, is that he seems to have taken the novel to a point where you can't really go beyond that, the stream of consciousness, this unconsciousness. This is modernism, and modernism was, was very much a, a, a movement toward extremes. Uh, it, it was a time of experimentation and stylistic adventure and, and, and innovation, and, and often it was in opposition to mass public taste. It had a, a elitist sensibility, or you could call it a sort of a, a, a countercultural or rebellious uh, sensibility, but one way or another it was sort of a, a, a rejection of the mass marketplace. But it was, you know, it was enormously creative, and uh, it created uh, possibilities. That and riots, that, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> ever, ever after, we, we've been reaping uh, the benefits of these discoveries. And, and something that, that really frustrates me about how people approach modern music is they reject the idea of it without realizing all of the many ways in which it's almost invisibly or subconsciously uh, enriched their lives. I mean, think of the expansion of musical possibilities that, that have took place on, on movie soundtracks, and, and, and think of all those mysteriously chilling moments in Fellini or Hitchcock or, or, or Wells or, or, or Stanley Kubrick uh, that are very much generated by music that, uh, in the concert hall, people might consider ugly or strange, you know, but, but, but in that context, uh, it's, it's actually had this, this very powerful effect. It's found a, an audience through a very popular medium. And also in popular music, I mean, think of the Beatles listening to Cage and Stockhausen, and, and you can hear the, the effects of that on the, on the later Beatles albums. Uh, think of Radiohead and, and Björk and, and other uh, artists of today who, who are very cognizant of, of uh, 20th century classical music, and, and, and you can hear that uh, in, in their work. You know, and, and yet, I mean, there is still absolutely this, this problem in, in, in the concert hall. When these same sounds are placed in the context of Mozart and Beethoven and Mahler, suddenly they, they sound very out of place. This is really a problem that's very deep-seated in, in classical 
concert culture, going back to the 19th century, before all of this happened, uh, you had a repertoire that was that was so strongly weighted toward the past that, that contemporary composers for a very long time now have, have found it uh, difficult to find their place in this canon. And, and, and sort of concerts are, are treated as exhibitions from, from Valhalla where these God. icons these, you know, yeah. these godlike figures are, are placed before us and you can't screw around with it either that's the thing well, that's you make, true, you make yeah. a very good point <laughs> in the book uh, listen to this you can't riff around with the classical canon because it's what it's well, precious it's yeah, unpl- it's, yeah. Uh, yeah and, and this was an attitude again toward the end of the 19th century uh, performances became less and less Spontaneous and, and much more focused on absolutely precisely replicating uh, the notes that were that were written down on the page, especially going into the the 20th century. Before there was there was improvisation. Uh, a solo pianist would would come out on stage and, and improvise something at the at the beginning of the hammer clavier sonata, sort of leading into it, and then improvise something else at the end, sort of leading into the the next piece, and and would add his or her, really her, mostly his own uh, uh, sort of improvisations and, and, and spontaneous thoughts. I mean, the performer was the composer so often that yeah. this distinction you know, didn't, didn't really matter at all. So in the, in the 20th century, we had this adherence to the text, faithfulness to the text, Werktreuer, uh, in, in German, sort of t- true to the work. And performances of the past were very often uh, careless and messy, and, and these composers in their lifetimes uh, complained about the slapdash performances, and, and I think Mozart and, and Beethoven would probably be thrilled to experience their music as it's played now by the best you know, solo musicians and, and orchestras. But at the same time, I think they'd, they'd find our concert culture strains, the silence. Yeah, yeah, the uh, fact that you can't everything. clap at yeah, a certain yeah, time. Yeah, and if you do, everyone, you know, you think, oh, God, what a, what a jerk I've just made myself Yeah, and like. this passivity, uh, the sense that you sit down and it happens, and then you sort of you quietly uh, get up and, and go, there's sort of not, not so much of a sense of the sort of interaction between former and audience, but above yeah. all, I think they would be confounded by the dominance of, of their own music, of, of music of the past over that of the present they wanted. Where are the new pieces? Yeah. What, what are people doing now? Because that's yeah. a big part of what they did, too, particularly yeah. Mozart. He sort of married the old with the new, and he, he wanted to appeal to the connoisseurs, but right. to the well, groundlings concerts, as well. Concerts consisted uh, almost entirely of, of new works. The performances of works from 50 or, or 100 uh, years earlier were, were much more rare. Uh, this is really a phenomenon that only got, got started in the 19th century, the, the performance of, of music of the past as, as a conscious exercise. And so that's Mozart and Beethoven were certainly aware of Bach and, and played his music but the, the, the actual concerts were, were, were just absolutely filled with, with new pieces. And so really, if you wanted to be absolutely faithful to the spirit of Mozart's time, you wouldn't, you wouldn't play Mozart at all. You'd mm-hmm. play new music. You know, or you'd, t- you'd take parts of him and you'd play around with that and add your own parts. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, does get, that, that does get tricky, you know, because th- there's such a gap now between his time and ours that, that, that our spontaneous reactions 
to Mozart could turn out to be you know, sort of jarringly anachronistic, and it doesn't make sense for, for someone in the year 2011 to be uh, improvising around you know, a piece from 1782. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a huge gap of time. There are musicians who, who improvise in, in the style of when they, when they play Mozart. That's very healthy, but I, mean, I think ultimately you do need to sort of respect the, just the, the ambiance of, of the period uh, when, when you're playing this music and uh, really if you want to capture the spirit of this moment then, then it needs to be through you know, a composer working right now as opposed to somehow you know, re- trying to reconfigure Mozart to, to bring him up to date. I didn't mean that though, yeah. Franz. What I meant was, and this is how you, what you do brilliantly, the, the talk you're about to give today is the, uh, on the Chacona mm-hmm. That medieval Renaissance dance. You've taken the chords or the, the melody or the standard descending motifs of lament. Yes. And these, these two different stories that kind of intersect. Through centuries, there's a kind of baseline that repeats and repeats, or, or this uh, sighing uh, downward uh, sequence of notes that suggests sorrow or, or sadness. I mean, these, these are uh, something like universals uh, in, in musical language. You, you can really, really find them all over the Western world uh, and, and even beyond. It's a very strong association, and, and I find it a very healthy way to look at music, not subdivided into these very, very specialized... Yeah. Well, you're bringing the old and the new together. Yeah, finding finding a continuum between the the past and the present, uh, between uh, what we call classical music and and popular music. Are you trying to do what Northrop Fry did, in a sense, with myth? A systemized (laughs) view of of literature, but there's similarities, it seems to me, that you're trying to identify universals. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't make that grand a claim. And really, I I don't quite believe that, that there are absolute universals in, in, in musical language. I mean, you can find that same sequence of notes in in a piece that does not have anything to do with the theme of sorrow or, or sadness, and, and music is sort of highly malleable and, and, and changeable, and its significance is always changing, uh, but I, I do find it valuable nonetheless to pursue some of these threads. I think ultimately it, it is to the benefit of classical music. I mean, my, my aim is to take classical music out of this kind of ghetto, this highly specialized and, and sealed off space to which sort of ordinary people lack access. It's, it's something that you somehow have to be you know, trained to understand at an early age. I mean, my, my attitude really is that, is that you can enter into it from all different paths. And, and when I talk about some of these sort of continuities and, and common threads, it's, it's with the idea that, you know, really, if you're listening to a, a Led Zeppelin song and, and you hear the bass line and, and, and understand the, how it's working and, and how, how that, that bass line functions within the, the bigger picture of the song, there's a great deal of Baroque music that, that works exactly the same way, and in fact, these songs are sometimes unconsciously, sometimes very consciously why are you doing this? You, you're pointing it out so that people who love Led Zeppelin can enrich their listening experience, find out why they love it, or I mean, what's the what's the no, motivation? I mean, I just feel it's just it's just you know you don't have to study uh, a, a piece of music in, in any given genre to to enjoy it, but. It can, it can certainly add something to the experience, and sometimes people have the odd attitude that seems odd to me, that you shouldn't 
yeah. think about music. Right. <laughs> music is something different. It's not like literature. It's it's, it's not like painting. It's, it's, well, it's relaxation. It ex- and it expresses the inexpressible. So yeah. how can you talk it's, about it? I yeah, yeah. And but it's but it's it's a it's an art form like any other. And you know certainly it has its some aspects of it are, are really just for enjoyment and, and entertainment and, and, and there certainly there are some pieces of music that you can't really you know, think about too closely uh, but but there's a lot of other music both in, in, in pop air and in the classical genre that, that is much more ambitious you know artistically ambitious like like how it wants to move you it wants to make you reflect on you on the existence everything I mean, it, it can have a political ambition. It can have a, uh, it can have that sort of philosophical, that that spiritual yeah. uh, ambition. Patriotic. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, just I mean, look at the Beatles. The Beatles were were, uh, were enormously um, ambitious people, and and they wanted to to use music to um, transform people's lives, to to liberate them. You know, look at Wagner. Yeah. <laughs> Wagner was uh, a frighteningly ambitious. Man. That isn't that what the, a lot of the greats want to make you look at the world differently, or look at it the way, in the way they look at it, or yeah. listen to it, or yeah. It. But then there's then there's a composer like like Poulenc, uh, who sort of lacked really these grandiose humors. But but he wasn't a mere a mere entertainer. This isn't background music either. There's there's a, a poignance and uh, and a delicacy and and sort of layers of, of much subtler emotion in his music that it may be difficult to put into words but you know, as you listen uh, again and again you, you, you pick up uh, more of those layers and it, it really is ultimately about it's not about finding the one answer that is that if you that if you listen to a piece uh, enough times you'll you'll figure it out I think that would be terrible <laughs> if you ever felt that you had finally yeah, figured yeah. out a, a piece of music or, or any work of art then it would cease to be interesting mm-hmm. the, the great works uh, are always evolving and, and always changing and, and always surprising you uh, but the, the point is is to go back and listen again to to experience it again you know not to take it for granted in my own writing I, I never think of myself as uh, giving the answer uh, as explaining it but rather undermining a little bit one set point of view and offering an alternative and a new perspective and just in, in encouraging that moment at which uh, it changes or really reporting on my own these these own moments in, in my listening life you write in uh, and listen to this about how thrilling it is to come to a piece of, of music that is challenging but you go back to it, and, and then at some point, you really do start to what appreciate, understand, love, love it. Is that what you're trying to get more people to do I with think modern so, yeah. music? Yeah, because you know, or any kind of music, because then you know, people people do tend to grow up with a certain kind of music that feels very comfortable to them, and, and it has very very powerful feelings of nostalgia. Connected yeah. with it, and 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 they return again and again to that that comfortable home ground, and and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think you can also use music to to discover new ideas, uh, new voices, new new parts of the world. You can use it to to travel back in time. There, there, there are so many ways in which it can expand your your sense of the world. That this this book, listen to this. This is this is really the governing theme of the book for me. I mean, these are all my own experiences of discovery, uh, of surprise. You know, when I write about Bob Dylan, I write about the fact that for many, many years, you know, until I was in my mid to late 20s, 
Bob Dylan's music was absolutely meaningless to me. It wasn't that I struggled with it and didn't quite appreciate it or understand it. It was just it was nothing. It was yeah. just it was just that guy that <laughs> some you know, the squeaky voice. Yeah, and and then very suddenly it, it, it did begin uh, speaking to me under these sort of slightly peculiar circumstances where I was, I was in Berlin, uh, staying at a friend's uh, little apartment in, in Berlin and, and needed to do writing and uh, I had about a week where I had to write a, a long article and he was away and I was just alone in this apartment and he only had a few records and I wanted some music to listen to and I, and I gravitated eventually to the Bob Dylan record just because I had exhausted the other possibilities. I couldn't listen to the Madonna record again <laughs> and this was sort of my last resort and, and suddenly I began listening to Highway 61 Revisited over and over and over again and, and started singing along and memorizing the lyrics and and within the space of just a few months, I was so well on the way to becoming a full-on Bob Dylan lunatic, and yeah. you know, buying all the bad records and getting the bootlegs and and all this kind of thing. And and and, so, and that moment uh, uh, fascinates me. And and I and and of course, you know, my highest aspiration would be to uh, uh, help uh, create such a moment. Uh, for people uh, coming upon classical music, you know, yeah. sort of well, is it just do whatever repetition? I can do to. But is it just okay? For, you know, you just came across it. You came ac- and and it was a, a last resort kind of thing. And yeah. okay, now I'm going to listen to it and listen to it and listen to it, and it either it's mysterious though. I think you can't you you cannot create the circumstances under which. A, a but you can force you yourself can, to listen to it, right? You can force yourself to listen to it, but you you may not get it, and and you and you can't uh, yeah. make someone else discover a piece by by forcing them to listen, or or certainly by by describing it in a certain way. I mean, ultimately, it, it it just has to come from them, and and it is very mysterious. And I think there are sort of psychological layers, and and even just kind of a. It's a chance, of, as a yeah. chance alignment yeah. of these, uh, of all kinds of factors that, that we can't even really put a name to. Uh, the, the your own life the too, isn't it? Too, yeah, like your obviously. Own life. If and I was in Berlin. You've just gone through a divorce or death. In this case, I was in Berlin. I was alone, a yeah. away from America, and somehow this very American voice sort of started speaking to me. I think so something like that happened, but mm-hmm. uh, but it can, it can be very powerful. I mean, I think of uh, Toru Takamitsu. The the great Japanese composer, uh, who as, as a teenager was was a was a, a soldier in, in the last months of uh, World War II. He wasn't even really fighting. He was he was in this mountain fortress, and and one day the, an officer brought uh, some of these teenage soldiers uh, into a room and, and started putting on records. And, and there was these scratchy old 78s, and, and this was Takamitsu's first experience of. Western music, really, and it was French music that, 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 that in particular, started uh, speaking to him. And, and you know, the whole remainder of his career, he was meditating on this great strain of uh, French music, uh, Debussy and Messiaen, especially. Uh, but you know, again, this is this this shocking moment of discovery for him under under very peculiar circumstances. So yeah, there's there's, there's no way to uh, <laughs> to arrange it in, in advance. Other than obviously to know to know about Suge- it, yeah. To to say this, I mean, often really in my writing, I feel like this exists. Yes, yes. And well, in <laughs> fact, that's how I'd like to spend the rest of our conversation. Okay, this exists, and if you spend time with it, it will reward listening. Mm-hmm. 
So do you have perhaps a small handful of modern work that if our listeners spend some time with it, it will, if not change their lives, then enrich it? Well, I, I know that there, there, there are certain pieces from experience that tend to, to grab people. There are pieces that have, that have grabbed me as well. So one obvious point of departure is Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is a piece that I think you know, fundamentally surprises those who may have pictured uh, classical music as a sort of orderly and, and serene <laughs> and uh, majestic art of, of sort of the contemplation of, of higher things. This is not a piece about higher things. This is, this is a piece about animal energies uh, sort of rushing up from below. It's a, it's a, it's a pagan mm. ballet, but it's also a, a piece about the 20th century, uh, almost a prophecy of the 20th century, because it's, it's a classical work that has rhythms and, and syncopations that look ahead to styles of popular music that didn't actually exist <laughs> when this piece was written. And, and uh, Stravinsky was not aware, uh, as far as we can tell, of, of African music, and, and yet there are rhythms um, and, and syncopations that, that, that seem to align with, with what was happening in, in African-American music in, in the first few decades of the 20th mm-hmm. century that, that, that reached back to the great school of, of African rhythms. These universals then, in a way. Yeah, but it was, so somehow Stravinsky sort of summoned up, really, in, in, the, in the quiet of his studio is rhythms that, that, that now seem uh, so familiar to us and, and the, the great jazz musicians recognized this and they, they, they found a, a kindred spirit in, in the Rite of Spring uh, and in the Firebird Patricia, there the other early Stravinsky ballets and, and so uh, uh, Charlie Parker and, and, and Coltrane and, and, and Miles Davis uh, all loved Stravinsky and respected uh, Stravinsky and, and I think this is, this is a, a fantastic relationship that you can find between this, uh, this classical masterpiece and, and really sort of the entire musical landscape of, of the 20th century. But it's just, it's just a fabulously uh, infectious and surprising and, and sometimes uh, un- unsettling and, and even a frightening piece. You know, you're, you're just not sure whether to be swept up in it or to run away from it. Every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm always taken aback by, by the, the, the sheer vividness of it and, and just the, the fantastic variety of the sounds. So that is one great 20th century piece. Uh, another that comes to mind, which is quite different in some ways, is uh, Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. And, but I, I often find that this is a piece that, that people uh, instinctively respond to. Accessible? Well, there are parts of it which which are which I think uh, any sentient person would would find <laughs> would find uh, extraordinarily beautiful. There there is uh, a, a universal musical beauty present, especially in the, in the two great movements um, in the work for uh, cello and, and piano and and violin and piano. This this very slow contemplative but uh, ecstatic music. These movements are surrounded by different kinds of music, uh, m- much more sort of rhythmically complex and harmonically complex music that actually reaches really back to the, the style of the Rite of Spring uh, in a lot of ways. But this music of, of sublime simplicity is the destination, I think, of the music. It proves that there, that there is a, a new kind of beauty that can be created uh, in the 20th century 
that is of the 20th century. This piece was was written in a prisoner of war camp uh, during World War II, and so it is it is surrounded by the the terror of the 20th century. But, but Messiaen was able to to find this new kind of beauty amid that landscape. So I think that that, that is a dimension certainly of the, the piece that also it's it's not intrinsic to the music but it is something you know powerful to keep in mind as you listen that's one of the, the debates around literature you just focus on the content or do you focus on the life of the writer mm-hmm. and to what extent do, do each affect each other you're suggesting that that's all part of the enrichment taking into account where and when why the music was written I think so, yes. I mean, there's always been a school of thought, certainly over the course of the 20th century, uh, a particular school of analysis became very powerful that that held that you can only talk about the music itself in its own terms, the form of the melody, uh, the the nature of the harmony, the nature of the rhythms. Then there's the historical interpretation and and the biographical interpretation. And I feel that I sort of go back and forth between one or the other. I mean, sometimes I, I find it most satisfying simply to contemplate the music. The emotional impact? Yeah, or, or even just, or even just you know, trying to, to, to get at the sort of pure substance of the music it's, itself and, and not to think about you know, when it was written and, and where it was written. And, yeah. and, and other times the context is, is, is very powerful and almost unavoidable. I mean, in the case of you know, Shostakovich's which is symphonies in the, the sort of atmosphere that that uh, surrounded them, or, or a piece like the Quartet for the End of Time, you can't forget uh, really about you know, where and when it was written. So, like Gorecki, I <coughs> can't help but think of you know, the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I, I I don't feel that ultimately that you, you need to choose between one or the other to create a hierarchy that holds the one mode of interpretation is superior mm. to the other. I think it's, it's a matter of changing perspectives. I mean, there, there is fundamentally no one true perspective on a piece of music or on any any uh, art form. Uh, we, we always have a sort of a multiplicity of ways to approach this, this fundamentally very mysterious and inexpressible object. Because every art form is inexpressible. Mm-hmm. Music, uh, along with uh, everything else. Poetry is inexpressible. You can recite the poem, but then when you try right. to, to spell out, you know, the poem uh, is the poem. What does it mean? Then, yeah. then you get into sort of a very, a very vague and debatable area. So, so the, the artwork is always inexpressible, and yet we, we have to, to somehow try to talk about it. We attempt to find uh, different perspectives on it. Well, there's something about beauty that when we, when we experience something wonderful, there's a human urge to share that and mm-hmm. to say, listen. This is wonderful. I want you to have that same experience. Would you you say that gets to why you're doing what you're doing? You want other people to have the rich experiences that you've had? I mean, of course, I'm in the end a journalist, so I I don't want to be too impressionistic and personal about it, in a sense. And and I want to leave people absolutely free to have their own experiences on their own terms and, and, and not to dictate those terms. In, in any way, which is why sometimes it's better to more understatedly present the piece, the experience, and, and in a sense uh, put it out there, and then let it let it go where it 
where it may go. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, of course, that very powerful emotional response is why I first started listening to music and, and why I first started writing about music and why I continue to do it and why I haven't gotten bored with it or, or, or felt that, that it's all played out because because I continue to have these almost shocking experiences where where something sort of absolutely out of nowhere seizes hold of me. You use the word shock a lot. You do. <laughs> I do like the word shock because it, it is music is music is shocking to me. It's not it's not comforting. You know, it it can be comforting, but I think some of the most powerful experiences that I've had bring to bear or or involve feelings of uncertainty and confusion and terror even uh, kind of an intellectual kind of terror not a I'm about to be yeah. destroyed terror yeah. philosophers talk about Burke and Kant in terms of the sublime and the terror of the sublime something so vast or unfamiliar or, or, or even monstrous that uh, our, our sort of conventional perspective seems to, to fall apart in front of us, and we literally can measure it and, and come to terms with it. Like aliens landing on Earth. <laughs> yeah, well, music has that that power, and it's not just a question of loudness, uh, although you know, certainly some of the great sublime moments involve uh, <laughs> maximum loudness at the, the, the end of uh, Mahler's uh, Eighth Symphony and so on, but, but also uh, silence can be quite uh, shocking and unsettling, and John Cage made this this great discovery of how completely bewildered and upset, uh, discombobulated people became when, when, he, when he presented a piece of music in which there were no musical sounds uh, <laughs> as, as such. But of course, it's all, you know, ultimately, it is the interaction of these elements, this multiplicity, I think, of consonance and dissonance and noise uh, and silence, order. And, and chaos and the tension great, and release yeah, yeah. And, the, and the greatest composers Mozart or Alvon Berg or John Adams uh, in, in her own time maximize those kinds of uh, conflicts and contrasts and, and, and so music becomes a landscape or a, a living thing or something else that we just can't uh, immediately make sense of and then we have to sort of keep going back to, to to understand and that's yeah, that's that's this power could you give us a series of if you love this then listen to this classical and current if you love Radiohead then listen to this if you love not necessarily <laughs> Bjork but we could do that yeah. because these are the, these are the people that you uh, profile and, and listen to this well I'm going to start with, with Radiohead and I think of Radiohead's own influences and the fact that they that they are fans of, of, of a lot of this difficult 20th century music that a lot of mainstream classical listeners find very frustrating. I mean, for, for them, it's it's quite exciting. But I would actually probably make a connection between Radiohead and Steve Reich, and, and they don't talk so much about Reich uh, as an influence. They, they, they tend to refer to the, the, um, the, the European uh, modernist composers. But Reich is sort of the master of, of, of variation through repetition. And, and I think from a Radiohead song, and it, 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 it begins with the, sort of the parameters of, of a pop song, a, a groove, a repeating pattern, a, a sort, of, a sort of holding on a, on a particular chord. It's rather minimal music often, uh, but it, it seems to build and change shape uh, as the song goes on. And, and, and Reich's 
pieces work on a lot of, a lot of the same principles. And so I would go maybe from, from Radiohead to Steve Reich's piano phase or music for 18 musicians it could be could be a good way to go with Björk. I would make the connection to Meredith Monk. It's a similar kind of, of voice in a way, this, this very grainy, gritty, folkish uh, voice that also has this sort of otherworldly quality, sort of this otherworldly beauty. It's, it's a folk voice that you can't quite place what folk it comes from. You know, I mean, Meredith Monk is American, uh, Björk is is Icelandic, but, but there's sort of a landscape in, in, in the music of, of both of these uh, sort of amazingly creative musicians that it doesn't quite seem about a particular place or even a particular time. It's some kind of timeless, nameless folk. And Folklore. Yeah, and so I think there's, there's, there's a very strong connection there. What about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? And when we pick up one or two others. Well, actually, let's, uh, how about Dylan? Because you know, yeah. I think I was just reading Sean Willens's new book about Dylan, and he begins the book with a chapter on Aaron Copland, which seems a very bizarre thing to do. <laughs> There's a folk <laughs> kind of thing in there. Yeah, but there, but there, there is actually a, a folk connection, especially in the late '30s, going into the '40s. Copland was was looking through collections of American folk melodies and. And the, and the collections that the, the Lomaxes had made, and, and was sort of looking for this raw material for his uh, these sort of new American classics, uh, this music of the open prairie that, that he was trying to, to create. And, and there was also this sense of political engagement in, in that period, just the, the, the great leftist period in, in American history, the age of the, the New Deal and the Popular Front. And, and Copeland was very much a part. Uh, of that, th- I think there is that potent link uh, from Copeland to Dylan. Uh, I think this this sense of America, there's a sense of an ideal America, which is not nostalgic. I, I don't feel a nostalgia in Copeland because he never he never lived on the open prairie. This this wasn't his his world. It was sort of an imagining of, of an alternative an America, an ideal America that, that might be in some other universe or, or, or in the future, but but was not uh, really an ideal of the past. And I think you have some of that same sense in in, in Dylan, this other America, the old weird America, as Cleo Marcus says. And so that's I think there's going to be sort of find a common path between Copeland and Dylan in that sense. Lady Gaga? <laughs> I, I you stumped me there. <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to think about Lady Gaga. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd be speaking with uh, Alex Ross, who most recently is the author of uh, Listen to This. It's published by... Uh, Forrest Gosheru. He's the music critic at the, at the New Yorker. Thanks very much for your time. Sure, thank you. Okay. Great to talk to you. Nice. Likewise.